2: Found them.
3: Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And
2: found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
3: Some other weeks, but boy, this week especially, was this amazing news week. There was just so much happening every day. There was the Trump indictment, but also all this other stuff going on in the news. And I I don't know how you keep up with it all. I, I really try. I, you know, I uh, listen to NPR and MSNBC and I read the papers, but primarily I subscribe to a lot of these um, news subscriptions. You know, I get the headlines from the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and, and the Boston Globe and, and other publications. But I find in a busy news week like this, I just can't keep up. You know, I I read them on my iPad and there was, you know, one evening I started reading it. It was like, you have 186 more of these email messages, each of which contain you know, dozens and dozens of headlines. And it just can get so daunting. How do you, how do you guys keep up with the news? I mean, Kim, you're in the, you're in the business. What's your secret to keeping up with the news?
0: Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned newsletters because another thing that I have been doing recently is reducing the scroll. I, I sort of, it has nothing to do with the the person who bought Twitter. Um, even before that, I found that just my habit of constantly scrolling and that was a way that I would get a lot of my news sources um, just was having an adverse effect on my life. The less I scrolled, the more um, the the happier I was mentally, and the more I was focused on the things in my actual life that matter. Um, but as a result, that also sort of took away the way that I used to get my news. And so now I've been very intentional and newsletters um, uh, are a real crucial part of that. I subscribe to a bunch of newsletters that I like. So they're all there in my inbox waiting for me when I wake up. And then I just, in one box on the, on the homepage of my um, homepage, I'm such an old person, the home, right on my screen, on my cell phone, I have a, a folder with all of my news sources that I trust. And I just kind of go through quickly. And, it, you know, I thought that that would be a big pain, especially without using Twitter. And I found that I've gotten down to a science now. I just sort of go through, I'm able to read a lot of the um, news publications, including uh, places like The Post, will have an audio version. So if I'm walking, you know, if I'm out walking in the morning or going on a hike or, or you know, putting my makeup on or something, I am I can even listen to stories instead of reading them. Um, But I have found that to be really good, and and also for context, two of my favorite newsletters aren't just about giving the news, but giving crucial context that I find really helpful. One is by Jamel Bowie uh, at The Times, who is just really brilliant in the way that he dissects, uh, just sort of you know, distills down an issue and makes you listen to it in a unique way. And another is my colleague Renee Graham at The Boston Globe has a newsletter. It's relatively new, called Outtakes. And I recommend that people get that, uh, subscribe to that, because that's also a good example of that.
3: Well, that's great. But now I've got more things I have to read, but they do sound amazing. So I'm going to add them to my list. But speaking of good newsletters, I mean, Joyce, you have your sub stack, uh, Civil Discourse, which is excellent. And I, I, I add it to my list and I subscribe to a few other sub stacks as well, which are great. But have you come up with any uh, strategies for being efficient in your consumption of the news? Um, Our text loop, because we usually alert each other to big
2: developments. That's true. I rely very heavily on you guys. Um, I'm exhausted listening to Kim, and I sort of bow down to um, the way that she handles this. I think it's a big, um, it's a really important decision. I think it's important to be deliberate. So I'll tell you a zillion years ago when Twitter was new and you and I were U.S. attorneys, Barb, so we never posted on Twitter. um, I stumbled across it and thought, wow, this is great. This is a place where I can amalgamate all of the newspapers that I like to read, you know, because I sort of have weird reading habits and I would like to read, for instance, from Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, and from some of the European newspapers like the the German newspaper. And on Twitter, I could actually just subscribe to them. So for whatever that was, eight, nine years, my Twitter feed was maybe 20 different news sources that I subscribed to and I would read them on Twitter. Um, I really loved that, it was really helpful to me. You're right, the, mo- the news moves so fast now, and it's so difficult that that's hard to do. So I use a sort of hybrid. I have some reporters who I really trust and rely on. One of them is your husband, by the way, Kim, And I put there, when they tweet, I get an alert, and I will try, within reason, to go ahead and and immediately read their new reporting. You can't always do that, right? If you're in a class or doing something, they pile up and and then you read them all at once. But something I do consistently is I start my morning by reading the news. I still use that same collection of, of newspapers, and now I've added some journalists who I really like to hear from, And um, it sounds sort of silly, but I start most mornings with a couple cups of coffee sitting down at my chicken coop, um, and I try to read
3: without interruption to start my day. Well, those are inspiring stories. How about you, Jill? How do you manage to—you always know what's going on. How do you manage to stay informed? It's not
1: easy, and part of it is a psychological mindset, because sometimes, like this week, when you're just deluged with news, and not all of it— the news you wanna hear. It's just, I have to sometimes just take a break and either go and cook something or take a break and watch a rerun of Stephen Colbert or something like that. But I think the way that I do it is I have sort of curated a list, much like all of you. And there are three newsletters that I rely on. Joyce's, of course. Um, Thank you. Hubble's as well and um, Heather Cox Richardson's. And all three of those are at the end of the day, though. So how do I stay current during the day? It's really by Google Alerts. And I follow a lot of columnists whose opinions I really rely on. And of course, I get alerts from all the newspapers I read. And that's how I stay current. And then one of the best ways is as you've mentioned, is the text that we exchange. But also, I have a group called The Quints, and they are always alerting me to great articles, great news stories. When I say great, I mean important, because they aren't all great. A lot of them are horrible. And a newer friend uh, who is a journalist and who sends me some of the best information um, In fact, she's the one who sent me the statement of facts when all of us were focusing on the Trump indictment. She sent me the information that was really the key piece, which was the statement of facts. So it's friends and newsletters and just taking a break so that I can then absorb all of it. All right. Well, I'll try to take all that good advice to heart. Thanks. Also, it helps if you don't need sleep.
2: Can I just echo what Jill's saying about friends because I do find that talking about the news with my friends and, you know, like all of us I have a couple text groups on my phone of friends from different parts of my life. Really, I think that there is value um, in talking this through with good friends, which is sort of why we do this podcast, right?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. Help uh, get a reality check in the sense of normalcy sometimes when the world seems like it's careening out of control. I know I enjoy processing all of it with all of you.
0: now had several days to digest the first indictment of a former U.S. president. So I just want to start things off this week by asking the three of you your thoughts about where things stand after this indictment from the Manhattan District Attorney and what could come ahead. So I'm going to start off by saying I personally hated this indictment. I hated it. Um, We've talked about speaking indictments. This indictment did not speak to me. Um, I felt it was very silent. It should have had a lot of things to say. (laughs) And especially since it's the first one, the first one ever of a former U.S. president. I understand that in Manhattan, they charge things in different ways, that they don't put everything in the indictment as a matter of procedure, that they also have uh, the statement of facts and they also have other information uh, like District Attorney Alvin Bragg gave a press conference soon after and you know gave even more information that was neither in the complaint itself or in the statement of facts. But I just think for the American public, with this being the first indictment, That it should have been so clear. It should have been spelled out in a way that really set the table. And to me, Alvin Bragg's table was bare. But I want to get your thoughts on it. Um, Joyce, why don't we start with you? What did you think about this complaint? Do you disagree with me? Um, Do you think I'm full of it? You can feel free to tell me that. What's on your mind?
2: Honey, you are never full of it. And I think that your reaction to the indictment is very understandable. And so something that we have to appreciate is how the prosecutors looked at it because they were not there to speak to the public as much as we really wanted them to to do that for us. I had said in my newsletter before it was unsealed that I hoped it would be a speaking indictment. What the prosecutors in Manhattan did was they conformed to their local practice. And that's very important because consistency is a virtue for prosecutors. Treating Trump like they'd treat any other case matters. This is their form indictment for these kind of cases. They used a statement of facts like they often do. And what I've learned more about in talking to friends who are litigating in that jurisdiction is that when things really open up is during discovery, when defendants, in essence, will get something very close to open file discovery. That means they'll see all of the prosecutor's evidence. They'll learn more about underlying charges, which has been a big bone of contention here. I think the important news for everybody who's seeing this wild back and forth on whether the indictment is a, quote, good indictment or not, is that this is done properly from a legal perspective, which means that any convictions the office obtains can be affirmed on appeal. That's the important thing here.
0: And Jill, what do you think? I mean, and I take everything that Joyce just said, and that's all um, very important. But I just on the day that this complaint dropped, you know, I'm I'm I spend more time looking at this kind of stuff than most. Um, I have read complaints. I've written complaints as an attorney. The fact that I read the complaint multiple times and then read the statement of facts. And I was still texting with you guys, as we mentioned earlier, about how we get information about, like, wait, what's the underlying? Is it state tax? Is it federal tax? Like, what? I still didn't know after reading the complaint and the statement of facts and watching um Alvin Bragg's press conference exactly what was going on. Jill, do you have any concerns about the way it played out? I I do, and I'm I would say in between what Joyce said and what you're
1: saying. I completely agree with you that there was a missed opportunity and that it was important that they stay with the law and the practice in New York as Joyce said, but it also was important that they make this seem to be a case of of magnitude, of importance. And they had the opportunity to do that if, for example, they had just released the statement of facts first, or had referred to that first, and made it more important. Because, of course, as soon as it was announced that he had been indicted and was, we were waiting and waiting and waiting. And as soon as it was unsealed, the first thing that was unsealed was the actual indictment, which, as you point out, doesn't really grab your attention or make the case. If you look at the Statement of Facts, where it starts with the defendant, Donald J. Trump, Trump, repeatedly and fraudulently falsified New York business records to conceal criminal conduct that hid damaging information from the voting public during the 2016 presidential election. That puts it all in a very different context for me. And so it really is maybe a question of sequencing. If they had put that out first or stressed in advance, you can't read the indictment without reading the statement of facts. It would have made a difference. And I think that while it's important to make a case that is like every other case, this is not like every other case. And you have to take that into account and that it was important to communicate with the public. And even if that had been to, say, just to journalists who were going to be covering it. When you get these documents, look at the second one first. That would have helped. So I think they did miss an opportunity. But this is New York practice, and that's it's worked in every other case, and he's gotten convictions in all the other cases. And ultimately, it gives more flexibility. You know, as a prosecutor, I have to say this is really a good method because you don't actually have to declare what the elevating crime is until your opening statement. I couldn't believe that, but I I talked to Dan Horowitz, who's now a new MSNBC commentator and is the son-in-law of one of my law school classmates um, and really came to understand how it works and how this benefits the DA and does not hurt the defendant because the defendant will get the discovery and have everything that they need.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I, I do understand that, that I, I've talked to other folks, other lawyers who said, you know what, this is good. This gives um, the district attorney a lot of flexibility. They're able to make their case and they don't have to do it right now. But at the same time, I worry that that would only give more fuel, um, you know, w- whether or not it's warranted to these claims from Trump's side that, no, they're, this is just a, po- you know, they're making this up as they go along. This is just a political attack and they don't even have a they don't even have their theory of prosecution straight yet they just wanted to they just wanted to charge Trump barb what what did you think about it
3: well I think it's a absolutely valid prosecution uh, Alvin Bragg in his remarks uh, talked about how Uh, since taking office, he's charged this particular crime 29 times and they consider it a serious crime in New York to falsify business records. New York is the financial capital of the world and having integrity in business records matters. And they would charge anyone else with this crime. And so the mere fact that this is a prominent political person should not prevent them from charging Donald Trump in this instance. So I think the fact that they charged him is absolutely valid. I think the fact that it comes first is only because that's the way the case is fall out. They're not coordinating with Fannie Willis and DOJ about who gets to go first and which one. I think by by the end of this, we will see the case in Georgia and federal cases, if they're going to be charged, charged before this case comes to trial. So eventually, um, I'm not sure anyone's going to care which one came first. Um, So I'm not sure that I, I hear that criticism a lot. And I'm not sure that that's one that ultimately is going to matter. But I don't like this charging convention in New York. Um, I've looked at New York case law, and there actually is a case called um, People versus Mackey that says... A prosecutor does not need to articulate the underlying crime, at least that was in a burglary case. And as you all know from law school, burglary is defined as uh, breaking into a dwelling with intent to commit a crime therein, a felony therein. And in a burglary case, New York prosecutors were not required to define what that felony was. And they said it would uh, it would cause confusion by the jury and hair splitting as to what intent is required because they want the jury to focus on the intent with the breaking and entering, and they don't want to have to do a double intent thing with what's the mens rea required for the underlying crime that he intended to commit inside. And so uh, as a result, it's not required in New York. But the idea that um, don't worry, Trump, you're going to find out by the time of the opening statement strikes me as um, not the way we want to uh, conduct criminal prosecutions in this country providing fair notice to a defendant so that he can prepare his defense so i don't love it you know imagine if this were a felony murder case uh, you know if you're charged with a felony you can also be uh, convicted uh, for a death that results could we charge someone with felony murder without specifying what the felony was like i don't think so right because you have to be prepared to defend yourself so i don't love this i know it's the way it's done and i know it's so it's kosher under new york law but I think, um, uh, I don't know if it's going to fly. It might even be a violation of federal due process. I don't know if it's ever been examined and scrutinized in the way that it will be in this case. So we'll see how that comes out. But in terms of the fact of the prosecution itself, and I also think those problems can be cured and likely will be cured by the time the case comes to trial.
0: I agree with that. I agree with all that. And I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that I don't think these charges should have been brought. I do. I absolutely support the bringing of these charges. And Barb makes a great point that Alvin Bragg has charged this many, many times, dozens of times before. This is not selective prosecution. I just wish, just given the fact that this is the first prosecution of a former U.S. president, that it was all already laid out as clearly as possible for the American people just for the sake of, um, you know, the rule of law, but we can move on. One thing that I want to um, ask you guys, as former prosecutors, because it was a point that I didn't think of until Wednesday when I was talking to another former prosecutor, who brought up the fear that okay, well, it doesn't matter which one of these things come first, except now that this one has been charged, these other cases that we're waiting for, the election interference out of Georgia, which is very serious, of course, the um, January sixth case that is being considered by special prosecutor jack smith and also the uh the um classified documents case that all of those cases can be pushed off by trump's legal defense team if they're saying oh you know we're we're inundated with these discovery requests and all the things out of manhattan now we can't possibly get to this right now we have to push this off and effectively that can be used as a delay tactic beyond the election um do any of you guys have fears about that
2: You know, in a normal case, this wouldn't worry me. I I repeatedly had the experience of prosecuting um, police excessive force cases where the state would file charges before I did. And then I would come in and file charges. And then by agreement, we would suspend their case while I went forward. Um, So so that is not something or I should say that is something prosecutors know how to do and work out. This is, of course, not the normal case, and for that to happen would depend upon, for instance, judges and defense lawyers um, to agree to let whatever case, you know, is going to go forward first, go forward. That could be a real problem here, so I don't think that this is an unreasonable concern. Um... But judges are gonna wanna see these cases get tried. And I don't think that Trump gets to play the delay game he usually plays. And I'll just share one case I've been thinking about. It's not a perfect example. It's a civil case where the presidential candidate actually filed the case. So different from this, where Trump is a criminal defendant or a civil defendant. But Pat Robertson, when he was running um, in the Republican primary, had filed a defamation case and uh, the defamation case came up for trial on Super Tuesday. And the trial judge in, in the District of Columbia gave him the choice. He's, you know, Robertson said, "Oh, I need a delay. I can't go to trial. I must you know be doing everything for Super Tuesday." And the judge said, "Sorry, no dice. You know you're gonna have to pick what you want to do. Trump's situation is different. I think the thoughtfulness that the judge gives to the situation is the same. You don't get to play games when you're a defendant in a criminal case. Get your ducks in a row and go to trial.
1: Well, I want to go back to, first, the earlier question about uh, everyone saying, you know, gee, I wish this wasn't the first case. Imagine if it was the last case. Everyone would be saying, oh, why bother? Look at all those other great cases. This shouldn't be brought. And I'm of the viewpoint— that every crime deserves to be prosecuted, and it doesn't matter what it is. And just because you commit murder, if at the same time you're beating up a different victim, you don't get a pass on the person who you beat up because you also murdered his colleague. And in the same way here, you don't get a pass on this crime because you committed other crimes that people somehow think are more important. But to answer this question, I do think it could be an issue where there will be some resolution that will be uh, agreed upon, and whether this one is going to be a quick and easier case to try and will go forward first and be done with. I mean, don't forget, by the time any of these come up, and assuming that there are three other potential indictments coming, there is still two civil cases pending right now that are going to take a lot of time. Is he going to use those to say, I can't defend myself against crimes because the attorney general of New York has a case against me where I could lose a lot of money. And I have a case where I could be declared a rapist as well as fined for defamation. So he's got his hands full. There's no question. But just because you're a multiple serial criminal doesn't mean you don't have to go to trial on everything that you've done. So it's going to have to just be worked out in a way that is good. And if the DA feels that the Georgia case is something that should go forward first, or if there should be an insurrection case, which could be something that would bar him from running for office, everybody might say, I'm holding off on my case. And I don't know that a judge wouldn't agree to that. So I think it's something that can be resolved.
0: Barb, do you think that Trump's team will be interested in not using this as a delay tactic? (laughs) I think they're going to use a
3: delay tactic as much as they can. Um, If they can get it like right up until the eve of the 2024 election, you know, they can say, we don't want this to be an issue. And then, of course, if he wins, then he's the president and you can't, you know, charge a sitting president and all that sort of stuff. One, I will add one thing about this, though, that might be useful uh, for people to know is that unlike some of these. Uh, investigative proceedings where we saw Trump utilize the appellate process for for delay uh, i mean i remember like when it was Uh, when Cy Vance was trying to get these records from Mazars and Trump would appeal all all the way up to the Supreme Court. And then even when it got remanded, he would push the test of what they had articulated and send it up to the court again. And years went by, you know, which is part of the reason it took so long to charge this case. When it comes to a charged case, there's something known as the final judgment rule. That means that for most matters, the defendant cannot appeal Uh, interlocutory, you know, kind of intermediate issues. So if he files a motion to dismiss and he loses, for example, all those appeals just get saved up until the end. And so that's one way that once a case gets started um, in in a criminal case, it does not drag out sometimes the way we see uh, other pre-trial matters, investigative matters, or civil matters.
0: Yeah. So just lightning round, if Donald Trump is on the ballot before these cases resolve, this is a question that we've gotten from a lot of listeners too. If these cases are not resolved yet and he's on the ballot, what happens, Barb? He runs. He's a candidate. Nothing prevents
3: him from um, running or even being elected president. So I imagine he will use it as a campaign tactic. And there's nothing in the law that prevents him from even
1: winning and serving as president. Barbara's right. And in addition, he can serve as president from jail. There is nothing that bars him from that except for the good sense of the American people not voting for someone who is under indictment for multiple cases. But nothing in the law would prevent it. You know, Barb and Jill are dead
2: on the money, and I saw you sort of blow back in your chair, Kim, while Jill was talking, (laughs) which is everybody's reaction, right, to this notion of convict president. It's just so beneath us as a country. um, I'm just going to have a moment of optimism here. I have so much faith in voters in America. Look, we have a lot of ways of holding people accountable, right? The criminal justice system, which has as of, as of yet not succeeded in holding the former president accountable. The people who succeeded at that were the voters in 2020 who refused to return him to office. American citizens who turned out, who voted despite incredible impediments that Republicans in red states tried to impose on their right to vote. They kept that man from staying in the White House. I am confident that Americans will do that again.
1: As if the 34 felony count New York District Attorney indictment wasn't enough bad news for Trump this week, there's more. Trump lost an appeal to prevent Meadows and other top aides from testifying before the January 6th Mar-a-Lago special counsel grand jury and lost a separate appeal to keep Pence from testifying. Plus, in related news, Fox lost its bid to prevent its executives and its anchors from having to testify as witnesses for Dominion, the plaintiff in the case. And that's starting on April 17th and they're going to have to testify. So let's start with Trump's loss on executive privilege grounds to keep top aides, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, from testifying. Other aides who the judge said had to appear included Dan Scavino, his deputy chief of staff and head of social media, Stephen Miller, the head of All Things Evil. I'm sorry, well, that's not his title, right? But he was a senior advisor um, and White House director of speech writing for Trump, John McAtee, who served as Trump's personal chief and um, personal aide. Nick Luna, another personal aide. Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor. And John Ratcliffe, the director of national intelligence. And Ken Cuccinelli, who served as acting deputy secretary of homeland security. So, Barb, Trump lost at the trial level, appealed, and lost again. How significant is this ruling on this particular executive privilege came, which seemed to me to be just another U.S. v. Nixon crime fraud exception, sort of set law frivolous to have appealed. I think that's right. But every time we get one of
3: these rulings, I think the law becomes more deeply ensconced that this is the law of the land. Uh, You know, you, you were there for the Nixon case when the U.S. Supreme Court held uh, and, and first recognize that executive privilege exists. It is not in the text of the Constitution. So I don't know what all these textualists are doing saying it, uh, executive privilege is even a thing, right? You know, when it helps me, it, of course, there's a thing. And when not, when it doesn't, uh, I don't see those words in the Constitution. But um, the Supreme Court said, yeah, you know, it's all part of the executive privilege. We need presidents to be able to receive candid advice from their aides. And so ordinarily, those conversations will be privileged and I can't talk about them later. But the court in Nixon said it's a qualified privilege, which means in some circumstances they will be outweighed by more important matters. And it's the country's interest that we look at, not the interest of an individual who happens to serve in the office of the presidency. And so, as in Nixon, they said there. Uh, there was another adage that came into play, which is um, the government is entitled to, as they said then, every man's ev- evidence, every person's evidence. And so it, that was a stronger interest than this qualified privilege. And so in Nixon, the privilege had to yield because a grand jury was interested in information. And now what we're saying is Trump is just kind of etching that law deeper into the stone because he's raised this issue many times now. And each time a court has rejected it under that same reasoning of U.S. versus Nixon. And so I I think, as you say, to raise these arguments now is now becoming kind of frivolous. Like we know where the law is on this. I suppose there's always some value in a court assessing the value of the privilege in a particular case so that there is not, you know, some frivolous request to pierce the privilege. But uh, I don't think any of these can be described in that way at all. Uh, There's a legitimate grand jury investigation going on. And these aides were people who were present um, with the president at the time all these events were being discussed. And so I think getting these people in the
1: grand jury is a really significant milestone in the case. So and I'm hoping, of course, that this will prevent Trump from trying once again to take this up again for an emergency order from the Supreme Court to further delay this case uh, and that it'll finish this claim of executive privilege in criminal investigations. But let's move to assuming that it doesn't get further delayed. How significant is the testimony that we can expect? What kind of questions do you think these witnesses are going to be asked and what are we going to learn from them?
3: I think that uh, many of the things they'll want to ask them about their conversations with Donald Trump. I mean, Mark Meadows, my gosh, he's the chief of staff and he is present at all of these meetings between Donald Trump and key influencers like John Eastman and Mike Pence. And so I think that uh, he is very likely to have information that could be useful. I mean, same with, with Stephen Miller, Dan Scavino was the deputy chief of staff, all of these people. And I also think that even if they don't have new information that is not already known to the team, it is still critically important to put these people into the grand jury to lock them into their story. What you don't want to happen is you think you know the whole story and you proceed with the trial and then One of these people testifies on behalf of the defense and says, you never asked me about any of these things. I've got a brand new defense you've never heard of before. And so this locks them into a story now before they can all get together and come up with some you know, cockamamie defense that no one has ever explored before. So uh, very important, even if they have nothing new to say, just for that purpose alone.
1: Excellent. And Joyce, let's look at the efforts to keep former Vice President Pence from testifying. Trump tried to stop him on executive privilege grounds, and Pence used a different argument. He used a um, legislative privilege, claiming he was now part of the legislative branch because he was going to be president of the Senate on that day. And um, he, Trump, of course, lost, and court struck it down quickly. I am hoping that that's the end of it, so maybe we should look more at what happened with Pence's argument, because he didn't lose completely. He actually was vindicated, at least in part, on that argument. He lost it in part, but uh, he's now said he won't appeal, he, Pence, won't appeal the ruling. And I'm just curious what you think about how broad the privilege that he gets is. Um, I I actually am concerned that at some point it's gonna be argued, well, Everything that led up to the advice that I was given about how to behave on January 6th, which would include information from Eastman, information from the president about how he should behave and how he should rule, would be part of how he was going to do his job in the legislature. So do you think I should be worried about that? What do you think the the breadth of it is?
2: Look, I think it's a rational fear given the way these folks have historically litigated. But, uh, you know, looking at what's going on here, I am optimistic that we are at the point where Jack Smith gets Mike Pence's testimony. Pence is not going to appeal. We know that the judge's order contained what sounds like a narrow carve-out for speech or debate clause privilege. It's important to say we don't know exactly what happened here because this is grand jury litigation. It's still under seal, but the New York Times and others have had reporting. And the basic notion is that the judge affirmed the idea that Pence has some protection under speech or debate Um, But that's very limited to his role in overseeing operations on the floor of the Senate that night, and that Pence will have to testify about any potentially illegal acts committed by the former president. I think to Barb's point, this gives Jack Smith the opportunity to get what he needs. Will it involve some litigation and some back and forth over what questions Pence will answer? You know, only time will tell. But here's the political reality if you're Mike Pence. And I don't mean to be a political commentator because I'm not one. Mike Pence, I think, though, it's dawning on him that he is not going to emerge from the primary as the Republican Party's nominee. He has only one path forward to having a legacy, and that's telling the truth here and helping to end this you know, sad administration, Trump administration that he was a part of. He can be 20 years from now, John Dean, who was the hero, or he can be one of those footnotes, the people that folks talk about in, in whispers who permitted a corruption of our government. That's the
1: choice he faces right now. And I I agree with you. I think that is very well put. So let's, Kim, I want to go to something completely different, which is the um, Fox Dominion lawsuit. And it's a different set of witnesses that have been ordered to testify. And this time, it's the defendants' executives, Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch, and board member Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House in a different era— and also the chief legal and policy officer um, of Fox, who will be ordered to to testify in person, but also Fox's top, and I'm saying this in quote marks, talent, uh, including Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Maria Bartiromo, and Laura Ingram. The judge said that they were relevant and he would not quash subpoenas. He also ruled that Dominion does not have to prove that Fox lied because it was, and he capitalized this, crystal clear that the statements Dominion is suing about are false. So all they have to prove is that Fox acted with malice or reckless disregard and that the amount of their damages. So Kim, you're our civil litigations expert. So tell us, how do defendants, executives, and employees get to be called by the plaintiff in this case?
0: Yeah, so it's important to know that in civil cases... Um, that the parties have the ability to subpoena, to to make requests that witnesses be subpoenaed just as in criminal cases, and a judge can order them to appear. And if they refuse to do so, there could be penalties that could be paid, including being held in contempt of court. That happens in civil cases the same way that it can happen in criminal cases. And if a judge finds that the testimony of a particular witness is uh, crucial, is important to... (laughs) Uh, a civil trial, they can be compelled to appear just as anyone else. These people are um, claiming that they shouldn't have to appear at trial because they've always already given depositions. Um, in some cases, that could be enough if if whatever they're, they're uh, witnesses for, whatever point they are trying to prove, if a judge says, you know, we have enough evidence to prove this point and they don't need to come in. But in this case, the judge is saying, no, they're central here. What what they said, what they believe, their knowledge uh, as to the falsity, I'm guessing, of these statements is a central component to this trial and they should uh, appear and compel, uh, be compelled to appear and not only answer direct questions, but also be cross-examined in front of a jury. That's an important thing. So that's what I think is happening here. And I think the fact, Jill, as you pointed out, that this case is already past what is called the summary judgment stage. So before trial, the parties will move for summary judgment, which basically means each party is saying, you know what, from what we've seen so far, the judge should be able to rule in, as a matter of law. We don't need a jury here. Either I've won or or I've won because they filed filed cross motions. And what the judge found was they did not give any uh, summary judgment um, relief to Fox or its parent company, but it did give partial summary judgment to Dominion in saying, it's already clear here beyond uh, a, a matter of fact that there was defamation happened here, that a false statement was made on Fox about Dominion. And that they were harmed by it. So all that is left to be proved at trial is, A, whether the statement was made um, recklessly or knowingly by Fox, and what the amount of damage that Dominion suffered was. These are the things that have to go to a jury to be proven. And the judge is basically saying here that these witnesses are crucial in determining those questions.
1: So it's interesting to note, Kim, that Judge Davis, in ruling on this, said Fox and Dominion have made these four parties very relevant. It's not the corporation that raises its hand on the stand. It's their officers and directors. So that's why he ordered them to have to testify, even though they're uh, you know, part of the family of the defendants. They aren't the defendants. They are the representatives of the defendants, and they get to testify. So given that they are now ordered to testify— What do you expect Dominion to prove through all of these witnesses? So the
0: key factors here, both for uh, proving their actual damages, in this case, as we specified before, and also punitive damages, which is something that's on the table here, is whether there was actual malice, which is whether the statements that were made were either made recklessly without regard to their truth or falsity or were made knowingly. And a lot of what we've already seen come out through the discovery in this case get right to this question. They paint a very clear picture that the people who were on air, the Fox hosts, as well as Fox executives knew very well that the claims of the people that they kept putting on the air were false, that they were defamatory and that they could hurt Dominion. So I think that's why they want them there testifying on their own behalf, being cross-examined about this. This is the the crux of the case. And there are the potential punitive damage award could be absolutely massive on top of whatever actual damages Dominion can prove they suffered as a result for this. So these people are right at the heart of the remaining issues in this case.
1: It will be a fascinating trial. I can't wait to follow it.
2: So something we've done on the podcast is a lot of analysis of the Supreme Court and the ethics issues, maybe challenges is a better word, that they've been facing. But a new piece of reporting that was released Thursday morning had us blowing up the Sisters in Law text loop well before 7 a.m. The reporting is from ProPublica. It's about Clarence Thomas. It's detailed. It's lengthy. It's well-researched. And it is jaw dropping. I have to say, you know, I don't surprise very readily anymore. This was something else. Kim, tell us about
0: it. What did Justice Thomas do? Well, for the past twenty-five plus years, Clarence Thomas has had a friend named Harlan Crow, which he can have his friends. That's okay. Well, it turns out that Harlan Crow happens to be a very deep-pocketed uh, conservative Republican donor who has over the course of these 25 years brought uh, Justice Thomas and his wife, Ginny, on boondoggle vacations, on yachts, private planes, opulent accommodations all over the globe from New Zealand to the Greek Isles to Indonesia and elsewhere. And oh, by the way, there have been other people in the company of these friends along the way. People like Leonard Leo, who our listeners should know who Leonard Leo is, but if you don't, he is literally the architect of the Republican plan over the past several years to install very conservative just judges across the federal judiciary, including at the Supreme Court. Remember that list that Donald Trump had of potential Supreme Court nominees? Leonard Leo (laughs) made that list up. Um, He is part of the reason why the court is the way that it is. And these are people who were hobnobbing with Clarence Thomas. Um, The report says there is no evidence that There was any influence at all uh, being exerted on Clarence Thomas during these trips uh, to try to influence his decision in these cases, which doesn't even pass the giggle test. Right. I mean, to to sort of commemorate uh, Harlan Crow, his opulent uh, estate uh, called Topridge, which is where a lot of these gatherings took place, has a painting from a gathering. Between Clarence Thomas, himself, Leonard Leo, and others, of them all sitting out smoking cigars. They they made it into a painting and now it hangs in Harlan's a painting. home. That basically it's, you know, it it, it reminded me of remember Tony Soprano and the horse? Like it's like hanging like that in his home <laughs> so to crazy. represent everything that this means. So uh, another point in this is that. Not the stays at uh Crow's private estate, if that was not meant to be disclosed, which it seems under the very lacking ethical rules right now that it's not, uh, Clarence Thomas, according to experts, should have disclosed the uh, the jet plane flights, should have disclosed the cruises, and also stays at any commercial properties over the past 25 years, and he did not do that.
2: Um, it's just unbelievable. You know, this is obviously bad stuff for a Supreme Court justice to be doing. You don't have to be a lawyer to look at this on its face and have questions about ethics. But Barb, what's the problem here? What kind of rules could Thomas be violating?
3: Wait, what? You mean you guys don't have portraits of yourselves with <laughs> prominent people?
0: Paintings, should <laughs> smoking cigars. Hanging I can't let in somebody the- buy me a sandwich. Oh as a journalist, I can't I know, let anybody right? give me anything.
3: I mean, it, it, Joyce, I think about, you know, the rules we had as U.S. attorneys. I know you and I have talked about this before. We physically bought the coffee that we would serve uh, because we did not want to accept anything. We, we, as you said, Kim, we did not accept lunch from people. We accepted nothing. It was all taxpayer dollars, Uh, And we knew that anything that we accepted would raise an appearance of a conflict of interest. But Joyce, to answer your question specifically, um, as a Supreme Court justice, Clarence Thomas and others are supposed to be governed by the Judicial Code of Conduct. All judges are. It refers to things like conflicts of interest and recusal rules and other kinds of things. But the, unlike every other judge, the Supreme Court says that they they are only advisory to the Supreme Court because it would be a separation of powers problem for any other branch of government to tell them what to do. Um, although, as a judicial officer, they are subject to financial disclosure requirements like every other government official. And so there are rules that require justices and judges to report financial transactions, including gifts. And one of them is um, any gift that aggregates more than $415 in value. I don't know why that's the number, $415. It's kind of an interesting number. Uh, They're allowed to receive some gifts, but that includes uh, travel related expenses and reimbursements um, from any one source. So I don't know the value of these trips, but a yacht trip to Indonesia, uh, a trip to the Greek islands, a trip to New Zealand uh, that even ended up with an inscription in a um Clarence Thomas wrote in his own, book, My Grandfather's Son, a memoir by Clarence Thomas. He hand wrote in to the top to his friend Harlan Crowe. Thank you so much for all your hard work on our New Zealand adventure. I wish you all the best, Clarence Thomas. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a gross violation of this rule of reporting. Uh, he says that when I first took the bench, I talked to a bunch of friends and they said, you don't have to report this sort of travel stuff. Um, But I've been friends with Harlan Crowe for 25 years, and so, you know, we're friends and all this stuff. Um, Joyce, you probably remember, when did Clarence Thomas take the bench?
2: Um, I think it was before he met Harlan Crowe, Barb. Would that
3: be the answer? 1991. (laughs) Now, I went to law school because they told me there'd be no math. But this is 2023, (laughs) and so even I can tell you that 25 years ago is about 1998, And so, you know, he comes along long after he is on the court. The idea that I had no idea I was supposed to report these incredibly lavish trips that were being showered on me and that it in no way affected my impartiality. Um, As as Kim said, doesn't pass the giggle test or in my case, uh, the weeping test.
2: You know, I always remember my mother-in-law used to love to tell me privately, and since she's um, passed away, I I will repeat it publicly, but she would say, the morning after my father-in-law was confirmed as a federal judge, she suddenly had like a hundred new best friends, like people who (sighs) wanted to drive her carpool for her and all of these other nice things. And that's great, right? This is a little bit more than driving somebody's carpool. And so at the point where billionaire industrialist Harlan Crowe cozies up to new Supreme Court justice, Clarence Thomas, all those red lights should have been going off. And and something that you do, no matter what if you're a government employee, is you err on the side of caution because it's all about avoiding the appearance of impropriety. So the fact that Clarence Thomas reports this stuff for a few years and then decides he's not gonna report it anymore, wow, that's that's a real red flag in my mind. Um, Jill, you know, Tim has set up the giggle test as our standard for evaluating the claims that are being made here. Is it credible for Harlan Crow to say that no one, not, not Harlan himself and none of the rich, wealthy people who were also on these trips with them who had litigation interests in front of the Supreme Court, none of them ever tried to influence Justice Thomas in any way, so of course it's okay. Um, isn't it okay? Why is there a problem here if they've said that to
1: us? So I use the red face test and this does not pass the red face test or any other test. No one listening to this podcast could possibly think that there wasn't at least the appearance of conflict of interest, the appearance of impropriety. And that it's especially hypocritical because, you know, all those uh, videos he recorded saying, I like the simple life, I prefer the Walmart parking lot to the beaches. That's the kind of guy I am, sure. And by the way, Barb, you said you didn't know how much it cost. ProPublica did estimate the cost of one of the trips, and it was one-half million dollars for that particular trip. And that's just one that he did over multiple numbers each year for over 20-some years. So the amount of money he's collected from this new friend, new friend who said, oh, Supreme Court justice, but I could get him, and then puts him into a room with what are only some of the most active campaigners for right-wing positions. So no, it isn't credible to say that it didn't appear bad or that it wasn't bad. We talked last week about the newest rules that have been imposed, and it is absolutely clear now that even if someone is your friend, you have to report transportation by yacht or by private aircraft. Uh, Or for that matter, I suppose, even if they reimbursed you for commercial, it's no longer that it's just personal hospitality. So he's clearly violated the rules in the past and is certainly violating the rules now. You know,
2: there's a wonderful column this morning in the Washington Post from Alexandria Petri, who I think is a a lawyer in recovery. And she writes in Justice Thomas's voice um, based on what we've learned in this reporting. And she concludes her piece by saying, "'I prefer to be where the rest of you, "'the rest of us love to be, "'which I assume from how much time you seem to spend there "'must be the parking lot of Walmart or an RV park. "'Yes, that's all I wish, the simple life.'" So you see, I could not possibly disclose any of these things, for they were not blessings but curses. These are the weights I must bear in my position. <laughs> if someone with the power I wield were not meant to accept these heavy burdens, surely we as a court would have adopted a formal ethics code. <laughs> um, so just straight from uh, the justice's mouth. Wow, this is, this is just a shocker, though. Um, Kim, you know, Justice Thomas issued a statement today, and that's something very unusual for him to do. Doesn't ask questions on the court, doesn't justify anything he does in public. But in this statement, he said he followed the rules, and if new rules were passed, he would follow them too. What do you make of that?
0: (laughs) Okay, I want to read two parts of the statement, uh, which I find (laughs) we're doing a lot of reading today. Really interesting. Uh, part of it, he says, "quote." Early in my tenure at the court, I sought guidance from my colleagues and others in the judiciary, and was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. Okay, this is Wait, back to who do me you speaking. think
2: he went to for guidance on whether oh, he could I take trips <laughs> with friends? Could it have Notice- been? Um-
3: I don't know. Justice That's Scalia. The, hey. Antoinette uh, Scalia. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's That's like, who you got fine. the advice
2: from. Yeah. It's fine. Scalia was That's like, Scalia. Oh, oh yeah, I do it all the time. You do it. good.
0: I might even die in one of these junkets <laughs> with some friends that are putting me up at fancy places. Who knows? Yeah. He doesn't say who it is. People in the judiciary. He said colleagues and others in the judiciary. He doesn't even say who he talked to. Again. That to me says we need strict, clear ethics rules for the Supreme Court. He also uh, later said um, he's, in, he's endeavored to endeavored to follow those rules, as Joyce said. Uh, these guidelines are now being changed by the judicial conference. And he goes on to say uh, that he would adhere to the new guidance as he did in the past. So first of all, this is important to note. The guidance was not changed. It was clarified that, yes, you too, Supreme Court justices, must follow this guidance that was already in place that said you must report transportation. You must report when you stay in a commercial lodging place. You must report all of these things we, if we weren't clear enough before. <laughs> We are now being explicitly clear, So, which that means that he violated these guidelines. The problem is there has been no enforcement at the court. There is still no enforcement at the court. And that at most what the judicial conference was doing, this board was saying, hey, we know we can't make you, but we're just at least speaking up and saying this is what you are supposed to be doing. This is what you have always uh, have supposed to be doing. And this is something that you ought to do from this point on at least. There's nothing we can do to stop you if you don't, but this is what you ought to be doing. So I think uh, Justice Thomas is trying to be a little too cute by half here. And I think we need to put a Uh, painting, a link to the
1: painting, (laughs) on our show notes because it is an amazing painting in which a bare-chested Native American man is reaching to the heavens standing above this group of people (gasps) smoking cigars. It's And and the fact that it's a painting, it's not a photograph. It's an actual commissioned painting. Yes. It's so outrageous. It is so ridiculous. And the fact that he's gotten away with it for all these years and that he is going to keep on getting away with it because Justice Roberts isn't going to do anything about it. Are you, Justice Roberts?
3: I don't think um, Justice Thomas is being too cute by half. I think he's being too cute by half a million (laughs)
2: it makes me so sad that all we can do is laugh about this. If we didn't laugh, we'd be crying, right? The Supreme Court's reputation with the public is bottomed out. Uh, The chief justice doesn't seem to know what to do about it. And he's got some runaway—you know, Thomas, I think, is by far the worst, but he's got some runaway justices. Um, Here's looking at you, Sam Alito, and your lovely Mm -hmm. trip to Italy last summer. It is really— a sad time when we need to have confidence in this institution, and instead we've just got guys
1: who are milking it for all it's worth. Yeah. When, when a leader of the Federalist Society is in these private resorts with a member of the Supreme Court, that's all you need to know.
3: Now we come to our favorite part of the show, the part where we answer your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes to us from Kyle in Madison, Wisconsin, who writes, Voting to expel members of the Tennessee legislature seemed like a gross overreaction to their protest of inaction over gun laws. Is this a violation of any First Amendment or equal protection rights? Joyce, let me start with you on that, because I know you wrote a, a great st- Substack newsletter on this very topic. Pretty shocking events um, in Tennessee over the past couple of days.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's very clear case law, a unanimous Supreme Court decision that says you can't do what Tennessee did. It violates the First Amendment rights of the state legislators. I don't wanna make that precedent seem more clear than it is because in that situation, which involved a Georgia legislator named Julian Bond, he was voted into office and the legislature refused to seat him over some comments that he made that were against the Vietnam War. So it's a little bit different of a situation, but I think the case law holds up very well Saying that the First Amendment is not meant to cut off political debate, that our elected representatives need to have at least the same amount of free speech that citizens have, seems clear to me that this would not hold up in court if there were a challenge. And interestingly, in the Julian Bond case, there were also race claims. And look, in Tennessee, right, they expelled the two black legislators the white woman who's standing alongside with them, they don't expel. So it's tough to see that as anything other than race-based. In Bond, the court does not consider the race argument because they don't have to. They've already ruled in Julian Bond's favor on the First Amendment argument. I think, independently, though, as a race claim, this would hold up to. What Tennessee did was
1: wrong. Jill and Kim, are you have any thoughts on this one? I th- I'm completely outraged. I just have to say my my blood pressure went up. Watching the proceedings yesterday was one of the worst things I've ever had to watch. And the racism was obviously quite clear when the white lady stays and the two young black legislators are removed for the same behavior. Um, and at, at first, I, I looked at the Julian Bond case and thought, well, this is absolutely precedent, no difference. But Joyce is right. Not even so much because it was a question of not seating someone but because this was a question of they apparently may have violated some rules of the legislature by taking to the podium when they weren't allowed to but if so well, all three of them Well that's just a question of
2: whether it's speech or not right i mean it's just a question of whether it's speech so i think it's coextensive with right,
1: ex- So I, I think it's coextensive with bond ex- I, I think that bond is good law for this and the language of the court in bond is very persuasive. But mostly I just want to call people's attention to this because we have a new justice elected in Wisconsin and the legislature, which has a supermajority in the Senate, is talking about impeaching her before she's even taken office and getting rid of her because they don't like her views. And we have Other examples that are just as bad, and I think that this is where democracy ends, if we don't come out and stand up to this. I've tried to reach out to Indivisible to see if there's gonna be a mass protest like there is in Israel or in France over issues, because I wanna be on the front line of this fight. I am outraged that this could happen in America, that someone who was elected by their constituents is put out of office by a opposite party majority. It's just outrageous.
0: Hey Kim, I'd love to hear your voice on this. Do you have a view? I I do, and it's what what Jill and Joyce have already said. I I can't think of anything else that I can add that they haven't already covered. It, It is awful.
3: Yeah. I mean, I get that you can have rules and say the decorum and the rules of the House are that, you you know, here's who gets to speak and the order in which you speak and you're out of order. But the idea that that would result in expulsion strikes me as incredible overreach. And
2: and there's actually a a Tennessee um, provision that permits legislators to protest. So I think it's very arguable whether this actually violated the rules in the House or not in the first place.
3: Well, I, I think I think it's not the last we're going to hear about this. Let's hope not. Our next question comes from Linda in Bethesda, Maryland, who asks, what is the significance of Friday's court ruling that the attack on the U.S. Capitol was illegal under the obstruction of justice law? Well, I think this is an important ruling. Now, if the court had ruled the opposite way, it probably would have been even more remarkable. But you, you may know that um, there have been a number of different judges who have been asked to decide this question. Many of the January 6 defendants have said that uh, my physical attack of the Capitol does not violate the obstruction of justice statute. That can only be violated by using financial documents. And every judge who looked at this said, absolutely not. Of course, what you did was an obstruction of an official proceeding. You know, you're guilty. But one judge in the District of Columbia agreed and dismissed a case on that basis. So it was that decision that was appealed. And now the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals have said, of course, it's a violation of the obstruction of justice statute to disrupt uh, Congress on the day they're counting the votes for the presidency. So it it, it helps in those particular cases assigned to that judge. But what I, I think the real significance is it makes it very clear that this is a crime that could potentially be used against Donald Trump when Jack Smith goes forward, if he does, uh, on the January 6th investigation. Um, And our third question comes from Robert in Canada, who writes, given the development of a bill in Georgia, uh, the state legislature there, um, would this bill potentially allow for the state legislature to remove Fonnie Willis as the lead prosecutor in the Trump case? Jill, you want to take a stab at that one?
1: Yes. Um, The bill is not just a question of removing her as the lead prosecutor in the Trump case. The bill would allow her removal as the elected officer that she is in the same way that a case in Florida where the governor removed uh, Andrew Warren as the elected district attorney on grounds that he wasn't going to prosecute rape cases. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, abortion cases, I think was what he wasn't going to. He was gonna use his discretion in setting his priorities. So this law, which is likely, you know, to become law, doesn't actually take effect until 2024. So in terms of the actual Trump case, if Bonnie Willis hasn't indicted Donald Trump before twenty twenty four, then she's never going to do it. So it's not going to actually have any impact on the prosecution of Donald Trump for interfering in the uh, presidential election. But it is something that gives power to the legislature to remove elected officials for reasons that I don't think fall within what would be constitutional for them to do. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly
3: Atkins-Store, Jill Winebanks, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. As you all know by now, hashtag sistersinlaw are going on the road. Come and join us as we record the podcast live on stage. We'll be discussing the legal topics of the day and answering your questions. We're starting off in Portland, Oregon on May 12th, New York City on May 19th, and Washington, D.C. on May 21st. There are still some tickets left. Hurry because they're going fast. Go to politicon.com slash tour to get your tickets today. We can't wait to meet you. Please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Osea Malibu, Helix, Calm, and Honey. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law.
0: Like ticket machine that everybody was trying to use to buy a ticket out. And I'm just like, oh, this is never. So I I see somebody in an Amtrak uniform walk by. I'm like, what do I do? I just want to get to D.C. I just need to get to D.C. And you go, oh, well, it'll either be this door or that door when the train arrives. Just get on the train, like to figure, buy the ticket on the train. Cool. And like literally five minutes later where I'm standing, it says next train to D.C., boarding here. I go downstairs. I get on this train. I had not bought a ticket. I didn't have anything. I get a seat. The train is so packed. Like people are in the aisleways or in all like the train. They overpack this train to get people out of so the train starts moving, and I hear the conductor going through, and people who don't have a ticket, they're like, we can't get you a ticket on here. You're going to have to get off. You're going <laughs> to have to get off at Newark and buy your ticket there. And I was just like, oh, my God. And everyone's arguing with him. Everybody's mean and nasty. So I'm just sitting there. He finally gets to me. He's like, where are you going? I say, D.C. He says, do you have your ticket? I say, no. So like, just hold on. And like goes down, is dealing with other people, and keeps doing that. We pass Newark. We passed, you know, metro, whatever the thing comes after Newark. And he just, every time he comes by for me for the ticket, I'm just like, I have a credit card. He's like, hold on. I get all the way to D.C. (laughs) I get off the train. I got to D.C. for free because I'm nice and I was not arguing with the conductor like everybody else was.